Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV, episode 150. <laughs> my name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my uh, privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet. I now often see him on CNBC and Fox Business. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Well, hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co-host, Bala Ashtar, one of the wisest followers on Twitter and social media. You can see him everywhere. He's the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. But more importantly, he is one of the top followers for CIOs and CMOs around the world. He just gave an awesome keynote uh, yesterday in New York for NASCOM and a whole bunch of huge other issues coming around. And also check out his books and blogs and other things on ZDNet. But it's not about us. It's really about the cool guests that we bring on board. And who do we have today to kick it off, Paula? Uh, it's our privilege to have Omar Abash, Chief Executive of Accenture's Communication Media and Technology Operating Group and a member of Accenture's Global Management Committee. Omar is responsible for Accenture's work serving the digital platforms, media, telecommunications, semiconductor, and consumer electronics industries, including building Accenture's alliances with major technology companies. Before being appointed to the current position, Omar served as Accenture's Chief Strategy Officer with responsibility for overseeing all aspects of the company's strategy, innovation programs, investments, and mergers and acquisitions. In his role, he orchestrated Accenture's own digital transformation, pivoting the company's core business to digital cloud and security services which now account for 60% of Accenture's revenues. Omar's new book, Pivot to the Future, shows how companies can discover value and create growth. I'm going to talk a lot about that during the show. You can follow Omar on Twitter at O-M-A-R-A-B-B-O-S-H. Welcome, Omar, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be with you guys. I appreciate that A very kind intro. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. I have to shorten it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great intro. Uh, say, I had to shorten this. I was there yesterday uh, at the event that you had in San Francisco. Uh, it was a wonderful event. That was a wonderful discussion. Uh, you had Adam Lashinsky and Will I Am on a panel at the same time. Uh, I was going to ask a question, but I didn't get to ask. So I finally get the guy to get you here on the uh, on Disrupt TV to ask. But think about this. 52% of the Fortune 500 merged, acquired, gone bankrupt, fallen off the list since 2000. Massive transformation. And we talked about that in 2009. That was a decade ago. And yet the response to business disruption seems to have faltered for a lot of people. Why is that? And why haven't they thought through how to pivot instead? Um, so... Ray, I think, as you, as you know, and, and I'm sure the audience knows, the issues vary by industry and by country. It's not, it's not the same everywhere. And actually, if I think around the clients I spend time with nowadays, um, you know, every CEO, every C-suite, they get that digital AI, uh, blockchain, you know, artificial, I mean, all these things are a very big deal and that they need to do something about them. And in fact, most big corporations, and I'm talking about, you know, big multinationals around the world, whether in the US or Europe or China or wherever, they all are grappling with these issues and they are experimenting with modern technology. You'll hear tons of talk about proof of concepts and MVPs inside these big corporations. The bit that hasn't uh, 
totally tipped, if you like, where people haven't fully cracked the code, is actually, even though I'm making big investments in innovation across the business, how do I harness that innovation to really create brand new value and new sources of growth? And that has been a problem area for, for many companies, not all, but for many companies. And so, you know, in the book, we talk a little bit about, well, actually, what is the playbook? You know, how to manage that? And what are the people who are succeeding doing that's different from the rest? The, the, the new book is titled Pivot to Future, Discovering Value and Creating Growth in a Disrupted World. And it took two plus years for you to write this book. It's based on Accenture's own experience of reinventing itself in, 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 in the face of disruption. You, all, you also had real world clients that you work with. And again, a rigorous two year study of thousands of businesses. So it's based on proven effective strategies of reinvention in this book. So one, why did you, you know, what was the catalyst for you writing the book? And then throughout this two year rigorous process of trying to recognize patterns for success, are they one or two key takeaways that you can share with us? Um, yeah, Vala, thank you very much. I mean, I'll, I'll jump in to answer those, but just one quick full disclosure. So firstly, I was only the co-author. I had two amazing yes. co-authors, Paul Nunez and Larry Downs, who are absolutely brilliant at writing and, and helped with the core research and the thinking. Um, and, and actually the story we tell is actually the story of our late chairman and CEO, Pierre Nantem, who guided Accenture through this period oh, yeah. and the whole management team. And, and that's, you know, you know, two dozen outstandingly brilliant leaders who drove the whole thing. And that, that's what the story is really about. Now, in terms of why we wrote the book, honestly, our cl clients were crying out for it. In every conversation we were having, people were like, yeah, this digital thing's a big deal. I've been on a digital safari to Silicon Valley, or I've been to Shenzhen, or I've been to Berlin, but how do I bring my organization? How do I execute? How do we uh, make this part of our DNA of what we do? Uh, and, and what are the lessons that are out there? And, uh, you know, building on the research, on our learnings of our own business, I mean, Accenture is a, a publicly listed business. We also have to deliver the quarterly results, you know, and stay relevant and change. And of course, our experience is working with you know, many of the world's big companies. We synthesize all of that to try and, and help our clients say, well, you know, here's what, here's what you do about it. That's amazing. Yeah, and I was we're seeing those shifts, right? And when, when you think about this, right, they're also, I mean, inside your chapter, you had a whole bunch of things about commonly held business beliefs drive, to drive growth that don't cut it anymore, right? And when you think about those, what are some of those things that people think? I mean, because people are running these playbooks for quite some time, and there's this notion of how do we jumpstart growth, right? I mean, this whole notion of transformation was just one part of the equation. There's a bigger question is, can we get to sustainable growth? Yeah. I mean, so, so Ray, let me um, dig into that a bit and also touch a bit on Vala's point about patterns. I mean, I think we all grew up in a world of, of strategy that said a company builds a competitive advantage and then defends it. Uh, and that, and, and there were a whole series of management frameworks that we all grew up with, like long-term strategic planning, like once-off business transformation, like fast following, uh, like milking your cash cow. Uh, like investing in innovation at the edge of the business because the mothership will kill the new stuff. And actually exactly. what we've learned is those things don't work. Uh, and they don't work today because the rate of change in technology and innovation is changing market and industry structures much more quickly than in the past. Those strategy frameworks I just hinted at were designed in an era where the rate of change in industry and market structures was slow. Today it's quick. And so, you know, to pick an example, you know, I'm sitting here in the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, uh, and uh, the, 
you know, there, there's no question that margin and profit and value is migrating from hardware to software to platform. And we see that not only in the ICT industries, we see it across all the industries. If you go and look at companies like Bosch and Siemens and GE, these in Electric, these are industrial companies, they're putting software in their hardware and they're connecting it to the world and allowing them to create different use cases. That, the, you know, the old logic of strategy doesn't work uh, in that era. So, you know, what does work is recognizing that disruption comes from innovation and, in, and innovation is accelerating. And no company, not, not one, not even the most strong company in the world can invest in all the modern innovation all at once. So leadership have to make very smart calls about, well, which innovations am I investing in and driving value from? So I don't allow too much of a gap to emerge between the actual value I'm creating from innovation and the potential value creation that new innovation brings. Because that gap mm. is, is what we call trap value and it attracts disruptors. So if there's like one lesson, it's uh, to survive disruption is treating innovation as a real long-term game and building it out in every phase of the company, not just the new bit of the company, but the old part of the business and the now part of the business as well as the new. And, and that's the heart of, of So the POC and that tiger team that just jumps in, flies in, parachutes in and leaves, can't do that anymore. Well, I mean, you, you have to experiment. And, and you know, you know the, the logic of you know, run loads of experiments, fail fast. I mean, all of that is still true, but that's not where most people get stuck. They get stuck with scaling. I mean, building an MVP is painful, but putting an MVP in 3,000 stores is really hard. It's and that hard. scaling issue is uh, where people tend to get stuck. Uh, when so this execution when they're... piece is a hard part to do. Yeah, right. absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is. And, and again, you know, back to reasons of, you know, you, you started the call with like, why are we not, you know, dealing so much with business disruption? I mean, there are some very good reasons. It's like, if you're running a big corporation today, you've got something called budgets. And those mm -hmm. budgets are in your core business because that's where you make all your profit. And they're fueling the, the ongoing growth of the core business, even if it's not super big growth, but it's growth. Uh, and, but you know, as a leadership team, that there's a new business emerging. The question is, how do you get the money for that? Because there's no more money. You're still the same money as yesterday. So now you've got to take money out of the core business and get it into the new business. And that brings you to, you know, how do I manage cost? How do I manage power? Uh, how does my budgeting and allocation process work in my company? And so the whole, you know, loads of questions of capital allocation is, you know, one thing. And then the other part, of course, is the human part, people. Uh, you know, the top leaders of companies grew up being successful at what they do in running bits of the core business. And they're awesome at it. And in fact, you know, the 20th century corporation was optimized perfectly for efficiency around those rules. Yep. The problem is the rules change, but the mindsets maybe haven't changed as fast. And, and how you bring leadership and people with you is a big part of the story as well. Let's talk about people and leadership. Uh, we've had um, your chief information officer, Andrew Wilson, on the show. We've had uh, Paul Darty, your chief technology innovation officer, who's the author of the technology vision report uh, that's incredibly insightful, uh, an absolute must read for any executive in any business, any industry. And um, my point of view with these two leaders as an example, uh, they both have a beginner's mindset. You know, they're curious. Uh, they're interested, they're present, uh, they're both incredibly humble. Uh, set aside the, the courage and intelligence that they both have, um, but they, they, there's a level of empathy and inclusion. So I, I find common uh, characteristics in the DNA of both. So in your research, uh, are there specific leadership traits and characteristics that, that help define these trailblazers that are 
that are really gaining market share and growing their businesses because they have a certain mindset that we should all aspire to reach? Uh, that's a wonderful question, Vala. And uh, yeah, Michael Blitz, who uh, with Paul Doherty, our CTO, author, our Accenture Technology Vision, are amazing folks. And Andrew Wilson, our CEO, again, is a brilliant guy. And, and, and you're right. I mean, I think all good leaders are curious and want to learn and, and, and have, a, have a way, have their way of how they stay open to new learnings. Uh, and that, I think, is critical. Now, in the book, the way we look to the subject of how companies move their culture and leadership from the old to the now to the new over time is we're, asking, we're encouraging leaders to look closely at the mix of, and, and I'm oversimplifying drastically, but the mix of entrepreneurs and operators. Um, the, the, the logic being that entrepreneurs um, are great at finding new value, never taking no for an answer, you know, picking themselves up every time the product market fit doesn't work and so on. And operators are great at running the business, delivering the results, delivering the numbers, keeping things tight. And actually you need a mix of entrepreneurs and operators in each phase of your business, old, now and new. Yeah. And it's not one or the other. Now, how you create a culture that allows that is a big deal. And again, you know, an example I like to call out is um, when Walmart acquired jet.com. Mm. Yeah. That was not their first foray into Silicon Valley or incubation land or accelerator land or corporate VC and all the other things, most of which didn't materialize. But when they brought Mark Law, the founder of jet.com, and they really rethought about okay, how do you motivate entrepreneurs inside a big corporation? It's different from treating everyone the same. Sure. It's recognizing that we all have different strengths and different gaps. And actually, you know, a, 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 an overly homogenized approach to HR and management doesn't really work. And so actually, they brought a lot of those entrepreneurs from that company into major roles of leadership. And if you look at Walmart's performance in e-commerce today, compared to what people thought would happen back, say, five years ago, 2014, it's much better. Uh, and uh, and, and super strong. And you know, when, when uh, Amazon come out and say, hey, we're gonna go to one day shipping, part of the reason they've done that is because Walmart was already doing two day shipping as well. So, so the thing that was super leading edge once upon a time, you know, mm -hmm. others close the gap. And so how you manage entrepreneurship alongside operatorship, because you need both, is, uh, is one of the things I think about. But um, you know, beyond that, having the humility, as you said, Vala, to, to be willing to be told you're wrong uh, and to learn and so on. I mean, whenever you get overly narcissistic leaders, I always sort of start to worry for a company because then uh, they might not be hearing what they need to hear. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, you, you spend a lot of time, right, talking about the people factor and, and it's, it's, you know, the, the methodology is important. I think I asked you this yesterday a little bit, but, you know, the methodology is here. The people factor is there uh, is also important as well. Uh, what about the finance part? Uh, you have a chapter talking about to finance and what that one learn yeah, read this awesome book. <laughs> thank you for the plug I appreciate it the the, the, the um we talk about working capital and we also talk about investment in people because that's a choice as well and um and, and we're highlighting several aspects of the choices that people have to make so you know in terms of investment in people I mean the thing that you'll hear me talk about is Seen the story of Geo. What is look in the world fuel tech 
digital and AI disruption, the skills we all need, uh, data scientists, everyone needs machine learning experts, those skills are not there. I mean, they, they just don't exist. So actually, the real question is, how do I not just adopt new tech, but how do I get my people to adopt and leverage the new tech? So reskilling becomes a core part of the investment. And, uh, you know, when we look at AI investments in particular with companies, you know, more than 70% say they're going to invest more in AI. Last year, we said to them, how many of you are investing in skills for your people to work with AI? The answer was 3%. This year, it's 18%, which is an improvement, but the gap is massive. So, so we think that, you know, part of the financial pivot is figuring out how am I going to invest in my people to help them succeed? And so again, I, I ask you to look at what AT&T are trying to do uh, with uh, network engineers and saying, look, networks are increasingly becoming software defined. So software engineering, software skills have a shorter life cycle. So how do I create a compact between employer and employee that the employer makes it incredibly easy for employees to learn digital training tools, you know, in their case, I think they're working with Coursera and Udacity to build these big digital learning platforms. But then how do you create the management incentives and the people incentives so that people actually do the learning? And then as part of their learning, they requalify as network engineers every four years or whatever the time period is. That kind of construct we'll see more of. But the heart of the financial pivot says, it's back to how, I mean, the question I ask clients, how much are you investing in the new, in your new? So if you're an automotive company, how much are you investing in autonomous? If you are a life sciences company, how much are you investing in precision medicine and personalized healthcare? And, and, and the answer is they're all investing something. But what we've learned is you don't get to the new without massive scale investment. And the problem is all your, so the trick is, is how do I manage costs in the core using innovation so I can free up investment capacity and then repurpose it to invest in the new. And that's the heart of the financial pivot. And, and as, as companies are thinking about uh, pivoting and developing uh, perhaps new strategies, we mentioned Walmart. Walmart, when they introduced smart robotics to inventory their, their shelf, shelves, they were able to redirect 35,000 existing employees to personal shoppers. So new business model innovation, new incremental revenue source for them. As you're guiding you know, thousands of clients around the globe, how much of the time is spent today focused on modernizing legacy processes versus new business model innovation? Yeah, I mean, it, um, that's a great, great question, Val, and I'm really happy you asked it. I, I, again, the argument that we make in Accenture is, I mean, and I look to two of my colleagues, uh, Baskar Ghosh, who runs Accenture Technology, and Debbie Polishuk, who runs Accenture Operations. These folks are responsible for running literally hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and and their argument, which they've done for real, I mean, so it's not, a, it's not a consulting exercise, it's an operational management exercise, is, you know, they apply innovation and AI aggressively in our core operations to make our contracts more competitive, to allow us to deliver better value to customers. But they don't have to fire people. In fact, they have obviated tens of thousands of full-time equivalent roles, but then retrain people to higher purpose, higher order, more human tasks. I mean, if you listen to um, Manish Sharma, who runs a lot of our global operations, you know, he'll tell you that, a lot of traditional work was like inhumane, repetitive, mundane, boring. Like this modern technology can get rid of that inhumane stuff and get people to focus on things that customers really need and want that require human cognition, human empathy, human emotion. Uh, and, uh, you know, in Paul, you mentioned him, Ray, our, our CTO, his amazing book that he wrote with Jim Wilson on human plus machine talks mm -hmm. about the trick is to help humans work well with machines because actually you can deliver more value and more outcomes for customers that help companies be more successful and therefore generate more employment. Uh, but it's the shift from yesterday's skills to tomorrow's skills that we think companies need to engage much more aggressively with than perhaps 
we see so far. And you know that reskilling and upskilling is going to be very important instead of every organization. I mean, some of these jobs have never been invented a year ago, um, five years ago, right? And, and it gets to that level. Hey, I got a quick question for you. I noticed communications, media, and technology are, are in one place. You run that group. What are interesting, um, there's a lot of convergence in industries and new industry business models. Um, what, what are a couple of things that you've seen that, you know, people in communications might learn from the media side and the media side might learn from the technology side? Well, I mean, that's a big question, uh, Ray. And uh, um, I mean, I, I make a joke with some of my people and our clients that, you know, when I grew up in business, you know, if you go back even just say 10 years ago or before, all comms companies had the same strategy. It was basically build a pipe. That was the strategy. And, you know, there may have been a debate about how wide the pipe was or how fast it was or how pervasive it was, but it was basically yep. build a pipe. Today, if you look at the communications companies around the planet, they're not on the same strategy. Uh, and some are more in the zone of they're going to be happy with the transport layer and they're going to be like the best network for 5G or, or something. Others are more like, no, no, they're going to do something in cloud and cybersecurity. Others are getting into content and they don't want to be over the top anymore as they buy spectrum and pay for networks. They want to deliver the... the Forget the, OTT, we're going to own content, yeah. They want to own it themselves. And so th there are a range of different strategies out there. Now, the media companies, as you know, you know, standalone broadcasters had a very tough time, linear programming with the move to digital advertising uh, and uh, and frankly, the fickleness of consumers who have just better choices and more options and they can move, you know, consumers are more liquid. And, and if you offer a beautiful experience the way Netflix does, which is good value, huge choice, easy peasy, whatever device, you just go there. I mean, it's so easy. And so um, I think a lot of companies in traditional mindsets, whether media or comms, have been grappling with that. Now, I think the issues are very well understood in the sector. Uh, and so people are getting more thoughtful. And so I think some of the games that we're going to see in the future say, like, look, if I produce an amazing series, rather than thinking only in terms of creative talent who create amazing series, I'm going to put them next to video game designers. And I'm going to put them next to AR uh, augmented reality technologists, because actually I'm going to create a new consumer experience, which you know, if the series takes off, you, the customer, can interact with it. You can play with it. You can have a completely different kind of experience. So I think we'll see a lot more moves like that. In the telco space, and I think 5G is going to change uh, the way they think about B2B space. So you know, everyone's talking about direct-to-consumer in the B2B, B2C space. And yeah, sure, you know, with faster networks, we can live stream sports. It's better mm -hmm. than the current version of the internet. And, you know, and that'll be all good. And people will do that. But the B2B space, you know, what can you do when you have like almost zero latency networks inside an oil refinery or inside an operating theater in a hospital. For bike surgery. It changes the game completely. And so I think we're gonna see an emergence of an amazing array of you know, creative value enhancing use cases, but you know, the next five to 10 years are gonna be honestly more exciting than the last. We're here with Omar Abash, Chief Executive, Communications, Media, and Technology at Accenture. He's just finished his new book. He's on tour, Pivot to the Future. I'm sure he's tired of hearing about Pivot to the Future. He's now in the middle of making the pivots happen. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show. And you can follow him at O-M-A-R-A-B-B-O-S-H. Thanks for being on Disrupt TV. Thank you, Omar. Thank you so much. You're Take terrific. care. Thank you very much. Terrific. All right. That was awesome. <laughs> That was that was that was amazing amount of nuggets in that 20 minute segment. And uh, we're going to continue uh, with amazing uh, uh, insights. Our next guest is Liz Miller, Senior Vice President of Marketing at the CMO Council. 
Uh, Liz brings uh, a, a varied career that spans over 25 years. She started when she was 10 in the marketing, sports, entertainment, retail, health, beauty, and personal care space. Incredible spectrum of knowledge. Liz joined uh, the operating partner of CMO Council in 2006, leading the consumer marketing services engagements, quickly assuming the role of marketing and operations leader as their chief uh, marketing officer today. As the senior vice president of marketing, Liz oversees all business strategy, marketing research, program operations, as well as leading all research initiatives, content creation, product and service development, and authors, many of the reports available through the council, which I highly recommend. You can follow Liz on Twitter at L-I-Z-K-M-I-L-L-E-R. Welcome, Liz, to Disrupt TV. Oh, thanks, Valen. Thanks, Valen Ray, for having me. I, I feel a little exhausted um, after my brain has just kind of exploded. I'm with you. Segment. That was so amazing. Yeah. Oh, like, I wanted to put bombs to where, like, all of my people sit to, like, make them move around, right? Like, that was, that was amazing. You know, it, it was a great conversation, but hey, we're here to talk to you about what's going on. What's happening with these CMOs? Are these CMOs and chief oh. digital officers ever going to get along? What's going on there? You know, they better. Uh, and they, they, you know, we got we to gotta start someplace and let's hope that they do start getting along. But, I, you know, I'm going to be super honest. I'm getting a little battle weary of when everyone asks if the CMO is going to finally figure out how to play nice in the pond, right? Because I kind of feel like we're getting picked on just a Which is 
Did you not have a strong leader that led with empathy and understanding that they were leading people who need to have that clear understanding of how their strengths are leading what their job is? You know, that's, that's crazy, right? Because the CEOs keep changing as well. And, and when they're like, hey, I want Pantone color number 2465C on my logo, <laughs> you're in trouble, yeah, right? You're like, hey, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> right. Like, here's an experiment. And I, I dare anyone to do this because I love doing it. Um, go to any CMO who is also saying, oh, my gosh, I'm really struggling with my CDO or I'm really struggling with my CFO or C like pick another C-suite title. And then ask the question, when was the last time your CEO came in and asked you about Facebook? I guarantee you they've had that conversation. I guarantee you that they're within an organization where someone called from the board and said, my daughter told me about this thing called the Instagram. Are we on it? <laughs> yeah. Right, but my job is to drive growth, right? So it just becomes that really awkward place but you know i also think it has to do some uh, a little bit with marketing as a function being on this really crazy journey right and and you guys know this you this is both of you know part of your own heritages and your own backgrounds right we've gone on this journey from being i remember when i started in marketing you know 25 years ago we were storytellers and branders right we were the ones that were like i've got the pantone book who wants to figure out what color we're going to do today like that's <laughs> where we kind of all started, um, and, and that was cool, right? That's what the organization needed at the time, and, you know, we were the ones that said, wow, when we print this globally, it's five different shades of blue. How do we unify that brand experience? Because that was brand experience at the time, right? But now, today's CMO is a business driver. Today's CMO is a customer champion. Today's CMO is you know, and, and, and it's supposed to be an orchestrator and an empowering force. But the organization quite hasn't gotten that evolutionary curve. Like, they haven't seen, like, the, what is it called, the pit of despair or the, you know, the trough of reasoning, whatever it's called today. They haven't quite gotten the memo. So you've got an organization, a C-suite, a board, a stakeholder group, if you're public, that's still like, I don't understand why you're not the coloring in department. And really seasoned executives for the past 25 years have been like, I invented the internet. Like, let me get on this. So I think that there's a bit of a cultural shift. Um, and there's a language shift. Like, Bala, I'm a huge follower of you on social. Love what you post. You. And there's something that I notice. You, you really talk so much about empathy and humanity and, you know, kind of a concept of kindness. Um, but let's look at how marketers talk, right? Um, when was the last time you sat in on a meeting and heard a phrase that kind of went like this? Um, we're going to do a great campaign where we've targeted an audience and we're going to have this go viral. Okay. If we were allowed to bug Custer's meeting with his army about sending out blanks with the smallpox, the same exact language would be used. Okay. We're the only business function today that actively talks about targeting innocent human beings. Like we, we talk about <laughs> segmenting and targeting and campaigns. We inherently adopt a language of war and violence and then wonder why no one believes we have empathy. Like, so I think there's no a little rate. rate. There's we need. no conversion rate. What's going on? We didn't convert. Right, like, like where's, like, we, we don't, like, we don't turn around and be like, where's our ammo? No, we talk about like content. Like we're gonna, and it's gonna go viral. And it's, you know, we, like, what are we talking about? Like, like just in your next meeting, 
I would invite any marketer who's on who's watching this right now. In your next meeting, sit back and take your marketer hat off just for a second. Just imagine you're out in a park, an innocent bystander, overhearing the conversation you're having in the room. Because the minute someone hears targeting, the FBI is being called, right? Like the minute someone hears, like, we're going to just blanket this and we're going to send out a blast and it's going to completely carpet this entire audience. I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a SWAT swarm around whoever's having that conversation in that beautiful park. But that's the language we use. And I think that's the mm -hmm. expectation that we set. So now we're kind of wanting to be part of this kind of cultural evolution and really mm -hmm. having a hard time doing it. So everyone thinks like we're the mean kids that they're not going to get along with. Right, right, right. It's fun. And listening to you guys, I have fond memories of before I joined Salesforce, I was a CMO that uh, rebranded a $700 million public company. And uh, I changed the color <laughs> of our logo. And, and I can tell you how many spirited discussions we had about the change oh, yeah. of color. But it was a wonderful experience. I mean, branding a public company was, is, was, a, was a great experience for me as a CMO. But, but, um, so I want to know a little bit more about the CMO Council. So a two-part question. Can you tell us a little bit about the CMO Council and why I wasn't invited to be a member? And then the second part is... I think, the, I think it froze. I think she froze. Yeah. No, I can, like, shake her up again. <laughs> and, um, you know, we know the language of business is finance. And, and so I think there's a lot of pressure from especially in a digital economy where you can measure uh, outcomes um, for marketeers to own a, a share of the revenue responsibility. So if at random I grab 10 CMOs and I ask them, how many of you, not through attribution models, but you, you own uh, driving revenue, maybe through e-commerce or whatever uh, tools that you use, what percent of CMOs actually sign up for uh, for revenue responsibilities in companies today. So a little bit yeah. about CMO Council and how many CMOs are putting the art and science and the science in art to actually create incremental revenue for companies? Yeah, well, that's, wow. Okay, so I'm gonna just go ahead and put that in the bucket of Bala just asked me to boil the ocean. That's totally <laughs> cool, awesome. Uh, so I'm gonna go and like sit in a cone of shame later on this afternoon because Bala didn't get invited to be part of the CMO Council. And I'm just gonna go ahead and sign you up. I'm just going to go ahead and create a member profile for you now, and now you're stuck. So every time we come to Boston, you're going to have to come to a dinner and like hang out with me. So sorry, not what you asked for. Um, but no, so the CMO Council, it's really funny. You know, in, in the year 2000, when there weren't a whole lot of CMOs and when not a lot of marketers had that C in front of their title, but I think more importantly, when marketers were not being invited to have a seat at the table right, when they weren't part of that strategic business conversation, uh, there were a lot of questions that were asked about that. Like, how do we get a seat at the table? How do I get a seat in front of my title? And uh, the executive director of the CMO Council uh, is a guy by the name of Donovan Neil May, and he is a persnickety South African, for those of you out there who know him, um, and he didn't want to answer the same question a billion times. So he took a bunch of people to dinner. Uh, and so the doors closed, and it was a bunch of peers who shouldn't have talked other right they should they, have, they should have sat there in total silence and talked about like golden state warriors scores right like they they, should not have, they were direct competitors but instead what happened was they realized they were also all peers 
and the conversation started and they flowed all night. And at the end of the conversation, uh, it was like, okay, well, you, you did this, you know, go, go do it more. And from 12 people sitting around a dinner table, we've now grown to over 16,000 senior corporate marketing peers around the world and are probably one of the largest, uh, you know, peer powered networks out there that are really just focusing on the mandates for that senior marketing decision maker, right? It's, it's a very different mandate, but I think it really speaks to Bali what you were just talking about, right? Um, I've been here for, gosh, 12 years, 13 years. So in Silicon Valley terms, like a thousand, kind of feels like that. Um, That's five companies, but go ahead. Right, it's like SD years, dog years, quote, same thing. Um, so there's, there's a funny thing that's been happening. If you had asked me that question five years ago, I would have said it's finance is the hot potato, right? Because we didn't, as marketers, understand how to communicate back to the business. It's not that we weren't measuring in terms of business. It wasn't that we weren't thinking in terms of growth, profitability, finance, you know, just, just take the telco industry as, as a small sliver. It's not that CMOs and telco weren't having conversations around churn and ARPU and all of the things that drove the business and drove the business mandate. It's that we didn't know how to communicate some of the marketing things that we were measuring and that what our agencies were coming back with. And we weren't translating that into finance terms that the CFO could respect. Not that the CFO couldn't understand, but it's that the CFO could respect, right? Because we were going in and being like, oh my gosh, we spent all this money on Facebook. We have a million likes. And the CFO would be like, and? <laughs> yeah, and? hey, I hope you. But like, it didn't make any difference. So, you know, I think that we have evolved our translation skills in being able to say, okay, as I look at social, as I look at that integration into omni-channel, and I, as I look at the rate of engagement, this is what this means for sales enablement, product development. Uh, you know, this is what it means for shortened sales cycles. This is how we've been able to impact churn. This is how we're impacting loyalty retention and all of the things that add to profitability. So we've been able to talk about reduction in overhead, uh, amplification of, of, you know, of, of revenue generating strategies that cross the organization. And we've also been able to support other parts of the organization, including service, including supply chain, including commerce, with insights into the customer, into customer behavior that impact where and how they need to behave as well. Right. So as we've integrated and helped the organization become smarter about the customer, we've also gotten better in translating those things. So I think that today's CMO understands that finance is just part of our job. Right. We get it. Um, but I think that where we still see that struggle is how effectively and how and what sophistication we have in our level of translation. You know, you also got this new report out um, that's talking about marketing operational models and agency yeah. dynamics. Let's talk a little about that as well, too, because I think that's hot on everybody's mind right now. Yeah, it's, it's launching next week, actually. We got it coming out in like the next week or so. We, we, we've long talked about marketing operations, right? And, and I think that we went through this amazing phase in evolution probably about like 10 years ago where everyone started thinking, okay, I've got all these great new technology platforms. I'm going to blame Vala's organization for part of that, right? We went out and we went out and got our Salesforce implementation. And we were like, we are going to be the most efficient, right? Because it allowed us to measure. It allowed us to track all of those things. But as with all things in marketing, we allowed the pendulum to swing from one extreme of, 
no measurement, no understanding, zero cognition of what we have done. We've got a money out tree out back, let's burn it. And then swung all the way over to almost the overall, oh my gosh, I can't even say the word, operationalization. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't ever spell that on Twitter, um, of, of marketing, right? So we, it's, and it's the same thing we've done with content, it's the same thing that we've done with creative. We went from all art to all science and then wondered where the art went, right? So I think what we're seeing now and what we saw through our survey is we're beginning to see a normalization of coming back to the middle. Because what's happened is when we ask people about their marketing operational structure, specifically through the lens of how it's enabling customer engagement at a local level, does it help you be resonant and relevant on a global scale with that audience of one that does not sit in your neighborhood, right? So how is your operation structured to be able to do that? What we found is for people who are fully centralized, highly, highly efficient. They feel that they have the best ability to allocate and spend. They also feel super separated from the customer. They feel far oh, away from the wow. customer. They don't understand what the wants and needs are. They, they feel like they are too many steps removed, right? Got People it. who are fully decentralized, almost right. the opposite. They feel super close to the customer. They know exactly what the customer wants and needs. They have local expertise that can say, I know our market and I know how to um, enable our market to feel that connection with us as a brand, but I've lost some of the efficiencies and effectiveness. Um, wow. Decision-making takes longer. Um, cultural infighting comes more into play, right? So I've lost that operational effectiveness because of my digitalization. It's people in the middle. It's hybrid organizations who have enabled strategy to happen at the core and then execution to be influenced by that local market that have allowed a little bit of both, that have allowed the pendulum to swing in the middle. Those are the people who say, I'm super close to the customer. I get what they want but I also have that highly effective, efficient ability to spend wisely. So that also has translated into how we look at the agency dynamic, right? Because when you centralize all of your agencies right, right. and you've got the stranglehold in the middle, you haven't been able to tap into some of the local talent that a distributed network might have. So it's been, it's been interesting to look at because it's, it's how our operational model has dictated how our agency model works and how do we bring all that together. Very interesting. Wow. Wow, super insights on marketing here from Liz Miller, SVP Marketing at CMO Council. Uh, you can follow her at L-I-Z-K Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Um, thanks so much for being on the show and hopefully see you at CC as well. Liz, you crushed it. We could have spoke for an hour. Thank you so much. Terrific. Thanks, guys. Terrific. Thank you so much. Wow, Ray. <laughs> you just unpacked the last 40 minutes and uh, it's going to get even more... Uh, Incredibly intense. in the last 20 minutes. Uh, it's our privilege to have Nicole France, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation. Nicole focuses on digital marketing, sales effectiveness, and customer experience, intersection of all of those. Her research examines interrelationship between sales, marketing, customer engagement, and how to make it uh, you know, work effectively. Uh, with, uh, again, over 20 years of experience as both technology analyst and a marketeer, Nicole has a very unique perspective on both the trends and the practicalities of effective customer engagement, which really, you know, all the research at Salesforce tells us that, you know, about 82% of 
of, of customers, consumers believe the experience is as important, maybe even more important than your product or your service. So critically important. You can follow Nicole on Twitter at LN France, L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. Welcome back, Nicole, to the Shroff TV. Thanks, Vala. Thanks for that kind introduction. And I will say, just following up on Liz's comments, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is amazing. It is actually pretty amazing to think how we set ourselves up, particularly in marketing, to really epically fail when it comes to doing the things that really matter to customers. But maybe, maybe it is time for a change. <laughs> you know, the fact that only 15% thought that the job that we're hired to do is what I mean, that's, that's kind of shocking. It uh, is. You know, it is shocking. And yet I, I have to say from my own experience, you know, and not at a CMO level, but, but at a senior operational level within marketing, that rings true. I mean, it's constantly a moving target. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. I think the bigger challenge is being unclear on what the primary objectives really are. Because if you don't know what those are, all the operational stuff is really easy to get wrong very, very quickly. No, and spending a whole lot of money on the way, right? <laughs> a ton of money, actually. Yes. So, so, so we're, we're, we're time for the halftime report, right? You, at this point, like, you got to be, you know, you're halfway through the year. You've been through, what, probably 10, 15 marketing conferences related on CX as well. Uh, what's going on? What's hot? What's happening? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's something I've been thinking about because I, I, I'm planning to do a write-up where I'm sort of looking across all of these things because there's some really interesting themes that have started to, uh, to emerge in my mind. And, you know, they're, they're in a bunch of different categories. So some of them, as you might expect, are technological, right? So I would say AI is one of the big, big ones in, in all sorts of variations and forms and uses. Um, one comment on that, uh, I think there is definitely a lot of AI washing going on generally in the industry where things that are really more properly described as analytics get labeled as AI. Um, and, you know, to their credit, I think most of the vendors out there that are developing these tools are trying very hard to, to sort of limit the boundaries around what they actually call AI. But it's a little bit of a runaway train, I think, at the moment. Um, having said that, I think on the upside, what is really fascinating is that some of these tools are really in a position where they've been in use long enough now and they've got the data sets and the feedback loops going back into the algorithms as well that we're really starting to see some very significant upside from using them. Um, and that's everything from a lot of the natural language processing that gets used in digital assistants which are, I think, actually a really, really important trend that I'll come back to in a moment as well. Um, but also on the, on the analytics side, really trying to understand patterns that are relevant in these data sets. And I want to be clear that what, what I think is often most effective is actually narrowly defining what some of those patterns are. And that really seems to be the consistent thread in all of this. If you're looking for, and we debate this, don't we, Ray, in our research meetings, if you're looking for general AI to come in and fix all your problems around customer experience, you will be waiting for quite some time oh, to come. <laughs> it's not gonna be here nope. anytime soon. But, you know, uh, my guess is not while I'm in a professional position to care about it. But um, the other really big thing, unsurprisingly, that is a major, major theme is data, uh, mm -hmm. right? integrating these data sets, really having a more holistic and coherent view of all of the customer data out there. Um, one of my observations about this is that uh, what I think a lot of the technology vendors in particular are starting to recognize is that not all data is created equal. I think most of us know that, 
But if you're really looking at this from an enterprise-wide perspective, and that's actually, I think, another really important trend that, that we're seeing at the moment, you know, this isn't about departmental systems. This is really about enterprise systems. And I think that's actually a pretty significant change, certainly from five years ago. I would argue even from a year and a half or two years ago. If you look at these as enterprise systems that are designed to support our interactions with customers, then we really need to think about that data in a very different way. And I think, you know, we have in most organizations what I've started referring to as uh, the data archipelago, because it's not even like you have a couple of islands, you've got a whole lot of them. And, you know, there's not really a land bridge between them, right? So this is actually a fairly large scale challenge and it's not gonna go away anytime soon, but I think part of how we're gonna address it on a practical level is to recognize that there, there are some things that need to be really tightly integrated and there's some things that are more effective being loosely integrated. And they're, you know, not all data is created equal and not all uses of that data are, are equally tight or equally important, right? So the, the, the context really matters. Um, the other thing that I see is a very strong recognition that the interface and ease of use are critical. So this is where I come back to digital assistance, right? I mean, Vala, tell me if this sounds familiar coming from Salesforce. Salespeople really hate to use the CRM system, right? They don't like to, they don't want to, they will avoid it at, in every possible way usually until the costs are high enough that it starts impacting their paycheck. And then they will typically do the minimum that's required to actually apply. So one of the things that is a very clear trend is I think there are a whole lot of digital assistants out there that are actually helping to really significantly improve the interface with the system to make it simple and straightforward. And frankly, to increase the value to the individual user, typically, but not exclusively salespeople, that is really having a big, big impact here. And part of that is, we're improving the quality of the data sets because we're getting better and more consistent and more timely use of the systems. And so there's a really nice kind of uh, virtuous circle that occurs as a result of that because you can do things like better sales predictions, right? When you've got better data in the system. Absolutely. Uh, so those are a few of the technology trends. I think the, the big overall thing that I wanna leave you with though is this idea that, wait for it, customers actually matter. They matter wow. a whole lot. Wow. And then maybe what we ought to be thinking about is customers and our ways of interacting with them instead of the technology. Um, and I, I have seen that from a wide spectrum of different organizations, different technology vendors, services companies that are responsible for different aspects of supporting their enterprise customers and the way that they engage with, with their own customers. And I think this is, you know, blindingly obvious, and yet oftentimes the things that are the most blindingly obvious are what we forget in the day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. So I'm very heartened to see that actually this is coming back to being the really central focus. And I think it's important because, you know, let's face it, the technology in many ways is getting easier and easier to use. So as organizations, we're less and less limited by the constraints of how the technology operates. And now that leaves us an opportunity to work on the really hard stuff, right? Like what, how we actually want those relationships with customers to look and what we think, you know, what we think is effective in terms of the types of business relationships we want to build. For sure. For sure. I agree. I, I believe conversational CRM will be a catalyst for driving improvements into the, in terms of data quality, because you will see benefit with the stakeholders that now use CRM in a more efficient way. Um, but, uh, and, and, and a great, segue in terms of your commentary about understanding customers. Um, one of the smartest documents I've read in some time 
was a brilliant article you recently wrote, which was titled 10 Signs You Have a Customer Understanding Deficit and Three Things to Do About It. And you noted that, you know, in a, we talk about an experience led economy, but without a shared understanding of a customer across the entire organization, it's impossible to design a consistent experience, much less one that you want. And, and I thought, the, the table that you created, which was the 10 signs you have a customer understanding deficit with symptoms and cause was brilliant. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you talk a little bit about that? And then let's get into those three ways where we can uh, reduce that deficit. Sure. Um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of these, all of these things are things I have seen firsthand in multiple organizations. And a lot of them I have heard about you know, in the echo chamber and a lot of other organizations. So if any of these are unfamiliar to anybody, please tell me. I'm very curious. I, these seem like, um, if not endemic problems, certainly very, very common challenges. And I think they're really, they're really symptoms of the fact that as organizations, we've gotten very comfortable with operating in our silos or departments and not really looking at the bigger picture from a customer's perspective across all of them. So, you know, one of those symptoms, for example, is uh, that there's a lack of alignment between what marketing is doing, what sales is doing, and what customer service is doing when either of those departments bothers to think about customer service at all, right? Um, and the simple fact of the matter is, you know, it, it, it manifests itself in things as basic as, you know, are we primarily trying to do upsell in our existing customer accounts and grow those accounts, or are we really prioritizing net new leads, new yeah. customers that we haven't ever done business before? That's actually a pretty significant area where you would like to think there's a high degree of coordination going on between marketing and sales. But the reality is in many organizations, they have totally different objectives. And that's before you get to things like the sales comp plan, which might be completely different yet again, right? Um, and there's not even a sense that maybe we would want to inform the customer service organization because they may in some situations be in the best position to actually start you know, some of those upsell opportunities or cross-sell opportunities, for example. Um, so, so that's one. Um, another one that, that again ties into some of the stuff Liz was saying is sales does not trust marketing or any marketers to have contact with their customers. Yep. Right. Uh, yeah, there's always an excuse why you could never ha contact that customer for a reference, right? Mm -hmm. Or you know why we can't actually let marketing set any direct invitations to that customer organization, anyone in it. Period. Right. Um, it, it is especially problematic when you start getting to senior executive levels in a customer account as well, right? Um, and even different parts of marketing battle over that for for some very good reasons in many cases. But I think what what it fundamentally comes down to is, as Liz said, so many marketers in certain organizations, perhaps more than others, are really so disconnected from customers that they don't really have a great understanding or feel for what's going on in those organizations. And I think that's one reason why sales doesn't want to let them anywhere close. They're afraid that they're going to have a conversation that's, that's totally um, disconnected from the mm -hmm. kinds of things that sales is already talking to them about. I think, I think marketing could even jeopardize the deal. It could even yeah, they might jeopardize the deal. Exactly. Exactly. The last thing you want to do is switch the customer off, right? Yeah. Which is, which is potentially a risk. Yeah. I think the other reason that sales feels that way is that in a lot of cases, the marketing campaign activity that's hitting their customers again, totally odds with whatever account plans they have with whatever conversations they're having specifically with individuals in that account or organization. And so they sort of say, no, thanks. I'd rather, I'd rather do without. Right. And, and your recommendation reminds me of 
one of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. And one of them was begin with the end in mind, where you say, define what it means to serve your customer well, yeah. get consensus and alignment, because without knowing what success looks like, how do services, sales, and marketing deliver a beautiful experience to, to an end user? And I thought exactly, was- exactly. Well, and here's the really interesting thing about experiences, right? And I, I actually went back to the original Harvard Business Review article that was published in 1998, introducing the idea of the experience economy. So that's how far back we're going here, folks. Yeah. Um, totally the analyst timeline, right? It takes, you know, 15 to 20 years for these things to really become mainstream. Here we go. Um, but what's interesting about that to me is, you know, as the authors of that article say, experiences are inherently personal, right? So you can only control so much um, because ultimately it's down to the recipient and how they interact with whatever the experience is or, or how they perceive what's happening. The point that I like to make is, you know, if you aren't at least actively thinking about this stuff and planning it, those experiences that your customers have occur by accident. And what's interesting about that is you got to wonder if they're happening by accident, how many of them are good, right? I mean, surely if they're happening by accident, there's a pretty good chance that a lot of them aren't what you would want them to be. So absolutely, the, the starting point is define what good looks like. And it, it's a very simple thing that does not mean it's easy to do. And I think part of this is that also really should be something that everyone in the organization um, is part of and is equally responsible for interpreting in their own role within the company too. So having that, that clarity of purpose and clearly and frequently communicating that is important, but giving each part of the organization the responsibility to interpret that for themselves I think is also key, which, which is actually one of my other recommendations, which is you really as an organization need to think about your staff, and I mean all of your staff right. very differently. Because if you consider that anybody in your company may be responsible for a customer experience of some kind or a customer interaction that is ultimately part of an experience, you know, you, you kind of want to empower your employees to do the best job that they possibly can, right? And partly that's about giving them access to the data and the tools to do their jobs effectively, but it's also about giving them a clear sense of what the priorities and objectives are and trusting them to make the right decisions. And I think, you know, this is sort of what goes hand in hand with all of this technology change is a real culture change. And Omar talked about it, right? I mean, this is about people change, culture change, as much as it is technology change and a, and a shift in strategy. And it's about really understanding that in order to make all these technologies work, you really have to help your people to work with them more effectively too. Absolutely. And that's a big mindset change. My takeaway from your second recommendation was if you're going to try to improve the customer experience, start with the employee experience. And you I, yeah. digital communication, cloud services, API data analytics, you listed a, a number of technologies, tools in a toolbox that if your employees have access to these tools, they're, they can be more empathetic, they can build their anticipatory muscle, and they can really, you know, be in front of, uh, you know, delivering uh, an experience that, that matters to, to all stakeholders, customers, employees, partners, communities you serve. So, I, I, again, this is a must-read uh, article from you, not just for CMOs or chief experience. This is, this is a CEO read because I think the advice you provide ultimately will become board discussions if companies fail to put customer at the center of the decisions that they make. So, brilliant. Uh, thank you for writing it. Well, thanks. Thanks, Val. I really appreciate that. I learned a lot from it.
Well, we're live here with Nicole France, VP and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. You can find her at L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. Thanks a lot for being on the show, sharing your insights uh, in terms of where we are mid-market uh, in terms of the year for what's going on with CMOs and customer experience. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks, guys. Another uh, brilliant appearance. Uh, Ray, you've surrounded yourself with super smart people. So I now know your secret to success. <laughs> that's the only way to do it. <laughs> I'm getting dumber, that's all I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. no, no, again, uh, you know, this is why Friday is, uh, is our, our Ray and my favorite time of the week. And uh, so we're, we're not gonna have Disrupt TV next week, uh, but we are going to have episode 151 where I believe we're getting close to 340 unique guests that we've had on our show. We're going to have Steve Scott, CTO at Cray. We're going to have Melanie News, Senior Vice President, Corporate Development at GS1 US. And we will have Brian Reese, who's one of my favorite guests, uh, publisher at uh, GigaOM. He's an author. He's a futurist. And I know every time Brian, you know, speaks to us, it just, it, you know, stretches our Your mind. mind explodes. I mean, it is great. So. He's a mind-stretching guest. Uh, so, so, Ray, your closing, closing remarks uh, after episode 150. We did pass a pretty epic milestone today. Just, just for those of you who are watching, episode 150 of Disrupt TV. You know, 150 episodes, uh, I think there's so much great stuff out there still. Uh, you've got a great story. If you're a CEO of a startup, if you're a VC, want to talk about something new that's kind of happening in the marketplace, you know, if you're practicing out there, the CXO, um, this is the show. So definitely come on board. We're going to see, you know, we love to share these stories, hear what people are up to and, uh, and continue that on. So it's and we good. couldn't do any of this without our world-class producer, Aubrey Thoggins, who you know, uh, again, we only, we, Ray and I recognize how important and influential Aubrey is when she's not with us on a Friday. <laughs> and <laughs> afterward, we call each other and go, you know what, we could never do this without Aubrey. So, so for those of you who are watching, uh, you know, uh, there's someone who ultimately makes all of this happen and the magic doesn't come alive without her. So thank you so much, Aubrey, for hopefully another 150 episodes together. Yeah, here's to 150 shows, and uh, maybe Aubrey will do a sneak peek and say hi. But anyways, hey, thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot for being on Disrupt TV show. We've got Aubrey. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aubrey. Uh, on behalf of all our watchers, thank you, Aubrey. And all right, we'll take care. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.